a week off of a pause from our work through Mark, picking up at the end of chapter 6 and moving into chapter 7 today, returning to this story of the upside-down kingdom. The king of the kingdom has come. He has been sent by God to bring the kingdom in ever-increasing fullness and to make that known. And it is good news. This is what Mark wants us to see. And tragically, few seem to see it, receive it, and to witness it. This extended section from the middle of chapter 6 through really the end of chapter 7, the kingdom is on display and Jesus is revealing it in a number of ways, really reinforcing the same message. Life in God's kingdom means healing, wholeness, acceptance, and provision in remarkable ways. Jesus is also putting on display the glory of God, as we saw last time when he tread on the waves meaning to pass by his disciples. And that phrase, to pass by, it was used consistently in scriptures to reveal the glory of God. God passed by his servants and his people to make himself known in his glory. So Jesus was making God known in powerful ways and bringing the kingdom in tangible ones. And once again, so many struggle to receive and to believe. So many are blinded to the truth, deaf to hear, or hard in heart. And so pick it up in Mark chapter 6, verse 53, into 7, verse 8. When they had crossed over, across the Sea of Galilee, through that storm, they came to a land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they had gotten out of the boat, the people there immediately recognized Jesus and ran about the whole region, began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, and even in the countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and they implored him that they might even be able to touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as even who touched the fringe of his garment were made whole. Chapter seven, but the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and They saw some of the disciples who were eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed, because the Pharisees and all the Jews at that time did not eat unless their hands had a ceremonial washing in order to hold to the tradition of the elders. When they had come from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they washed, and they observed many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. We'll stop there, even though Jesus goes on to prove his point with some specific examples, which you're welcome to scan ahead or read ahead this week, perhaps picking those up next time. What's truly amazing in this, in this broader section is we see the glory of God on display in miraculous power. We see Jesus entering, entering and walking in and bringing the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like as he feeds 5,000 miraculously from a few loaves and a few fish, he, he provides abundantly beyond what anyone could have imagined and expected. 
Then he calms the winds and the waves with his mere presence, proving power and authority given to him. Then we see this, this other incredible example of healing. We've seen he, his healing power flow through his, his garments and his robes just in his mere presence before. When the, remember when the woman who had been subject to bleeding reached out and touched his cloak. Now it is happening by the dozens or by the hundreds. Simply his presence with the power of God to heal and to bring wholeness wherever he goes. And what do the Pharisees want to talk about with all of this happening? How often you wash your hands. It seems that they are missing the whole point, majoring on the minors, so to speak. Obviously, there's much more to it than simply washing hands before eating, which I would suggest is a good practice. There's a lot more to it. But Jesus in his reaction, his harsh rebuke of them reveals how foolish, how dull, and ultimately how hard-hearted they were being toward the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. And he calls them hypocrites. And my guess is that many of us have, have looked into to this word, but it was an ancient one. A hypocrite was an actor in a Greek play. And that, that actor would hold up a mask. There weren't full costumes and there were a limited number of actors apparently. And from scene to scene, the same person, the same actor may play many different roles and they would change those roles by hold, simply holding up a mask in front of their face and performing for the crowds. And so when he calls them hypocrites, perhaps we have lost some of that original meaning when we say, maybe we do mean two-faced. You, you say one thing, you do another. You're, you, you're this way in one, one circumstance, you're that way in another. And that is right. But beyond that, or maybe even deeper than that, when Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, everything you do is for a show. Everything you do is for the applause and the approval of an audience. Yet you're willing to change scenes, to change character from scene to scene. But his primary rebuke of them is that everything you do is for your own glory, is to receive approval, accolades, attention, and applause from an audience to esteem yourselves and your own glory, not the glory of God. And that's what he continued to challenge them about, that on the outside they looked one way when merely they were acting and going through motions. It wasn't truly who they were. They were after the glory and the esteem of others. Your hearts are far from me. The Pharisees prided themselves in being the most devout, the most holy, the most faithful to the Hebrew scriptures and more. In the Hebrew scriptures, there were 600 plus laws or rules, commandments, regulations, depending on how you want to assign them. And these Pharisees believed that they were able to keep every one of them through their devotion. They did not believe that they were sinless, but that when they sinned, they faithfully followed the prescription to become cleansed, ceremonial, to become holy again in God's sight, performing the right sacrifices and offerings. And they believed they were able to do so at a level that few others could attain, though everyone should, as should aspire to be like them. These Pharisees and other groups and other sects would emphasize specific traditions because those 600 laws or rules weren't enough. Over the course of the centuries, the leaders, the elders, commentated more and more on those laws. What does it mean, for example, to truly obey the Sabbath and to keep it holy? And you begin to ask those questions. How, what, I can't work. What is work? 
Can I walk? Can I run? Can I jump? Can I play? Can I cook? Can I lift? In order to not dishonor God or defile or break his commandments, what can I do? And so the equivalent of their pastors or teachers would commentate and dictate what that would look like to truly be holy and devout and be certain you weren't breaking this commandment. And they defined it down to even an ounce that you could, the amount of weight you could lift or the steps you could take on the Sabbath day. And that's just one example. And that oral tradition and oral code was passed down through the centuries from the rabbis to their disciples who would become rabbis. And that's how groups were built. And divisions arose between these groups or these sects. And the, uh, uh, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes were some of the larger groups, all believing that their interpretation and their oral tradition of those 600 laws, some having greater weight than others, like the top 10 list, that theirs was the right one. Theirs was the best way. And, and so whenever they got together, there was hot debate and even division and ridicule on who was more right and therefore more holy and righteous in God's sight. Does any of this sound familiar today in our context? Have we not done the same? Let's come back to this example of ceremonial washing that they are arguing with Jesus about ultimately and what he's allowing for their disciples. It wasn't simply about washing for cleanliness. Remember, this was a time far before an understanding of any germs. Maybe God had prescribed some of the ceremonial laws and rules to keep them actually physically or healthy and, and well, especially in their desert wanderings. Many believe, believe that. But this had something more to do with a preparation for worship. Cleansing and washing was more ritualistic in order to, to consider, I, I, I've been in the world, I've, I, I've, I, I've strayed from the presence of God, and now I'm coming, I'm preparing myself to come back into the presence of God at the temple where he dwells and to worship him. So it was much more ceremonial how they would cleanse or bathe themselves, and especially for the priests to wash certain vessels and, and dishes that were used in that worship. A lot of it was ritualistic and preparatory, meant to be symbolic of what was happening in the heart. But as we know, rituals can so quickly simply become outward motions and have nothing to do with what's more deeply in the heart. Well, the Pharisees and their rabbis and their, their elders over the years said, if, if this amount of washing is good, wouldn't more be better? Let's bring, if the temple is where God dwells and we can dwell with him, let's extend the idea of temple and holiness even to our own homes because we want to dwell in God's presence and be holy in all places. So when we go out to the marketplace and are defiled by the uncleanliness of the world, those not following, when we have contact, even business contact with those not following Yahweh, we have, we have, we have defiled ourselves. We must come and ceremonially wash when we come into our homes and eat a meal. It's extending that idea of temple even to their own homes, which, which went far beyond the Hebrew scriptures. But their elders and their teachers believed, and we want to say out of the right motivation of heart originally, to dwell with God, to do nothing, to break the communion with God. We would esteem that value. But Jesus now condemns it as merely perfunctory, as merely religious, as merely for the show of others, for an appearance of holiness, when really their hearts are have totally strayed from the heart of God to dwell and commune with him 
in more of a private act of worship and devotion. They have made it public. And so that is what is happening here. It's interesting that Mark bookends this encounter and this conflict and this rebuke that Jesus has with the Pharisees by showing us Jesus in the marketplace, so to speak, becoming defiled according to the Pharisees. He's letting all these sick people with some kind of diseases, with likely discharges or skin diseases, many things prescribed against in the Hebrew scriptures that would defile someone. Not only does he touch the world, he welcomes them to touch him. And if the Pharisees had been aware, which likely they were, they would have said Jesus and his disciples are completely defiled. They've been unclean. And now they are coming to eat without going through the proper rituals. And they're claiming Jesus as the holy one, the righteous one, as the rabbi. And many are flocking to him away from the Pharisees. Their attention and their audience is pulling back. So you see what is happening truly in the heart. And Jesus confronts it. And then on the back end, the book ending this, Jesus will enter into a Gentile's house, a non-Jew, and a Syrophoenician woman will come and will also encounter him. And, and her, her daughter is possessed by an evil spirit. Another encounter that would have been completely defiling. See, the Pharisees had, had learned how to prescribe their own holiness and remove themselves from the world, to inoculate themselves from the world as much as possible. And if they had to engage with it, and become unclean or defiled, then they had a process to quickly cleanse and wipe their hands from the world. And Jesus shows us the opposite way. He shows us the kingdom of God does not become defiled by those that are sick. The kingdom of God brings healing and holiness wherever it goes. It extends to those that are sick. Jesus shows us the upside-down kingdom that was unexpected. Back to this oral code. It was, at this point, it was not written down. It wasn't until the second century that a lot of the oral tradition was first written in a text called the Mishnah. And it later, a further commentary called the Gemara was written in the fifth century. So some decades and then hundreds of years beyond Jesus' time. And together they became the Talmud. And the Talmud had all of the collective instructions for Jewish purity and life and ethics and morality. And until the last couple hundred years, for all Jewish communities, it was considered really the standard of life, the guide for daily living, according to one source, for all Jewish thought and aspiration. In the advent of modernity, that has shifted and there's been further fracturing on how to faithfully follow the scriptures and how much of those oral traditions having become written down were to be followed, to be faithful as a devout Jew. But at the time of Jesus, it, yes, it's possible that some were written down, but there was much that was simply passed through oral tradition and communication. And that's where those factions and those groups of Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes and others were divided and debating one to another. Today, just simply amongst what we would say the Christian faith or tradition, some estimate tens of thousands of divisions, sects, or denominations, even amongst just the mainstream movements that would have millions of adherents worldwide, there are dozens upon dozens each one believing that their interpretation of the same scriptures is the most right 
is the most holy, is the most correct, leading to practice and application, praxi, in worship, in confession, repentance, forgiveness, grace, in how to receive and walk in salvation, in what sanctification and holiness looks like, even down to the practices of receiving the Lord's Supper or being baptized. And those traditions and teachings go far beyond the scriptures, just as they did in Jesus' day. And so when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are giving me lip service, but your hearts are far from me. The humble amongst us would ask Jesus, what would you say of us today? What would you say of your church, of those that claim to be faithful, devout followers of Jesus? Not are we hypocritical, but where is our hypocrisy? Jesus, reveal that. Where are our actions simply lip service or actions that are devoid from our heart and our character. Forgive us, Lord. We are desperate. Bring us back to that heart. And to be sure, when I say the we and the us, I primarily am meaning the the broader we, the collective we. But certainly, we are not wrong to ask individually, Jesus, where is that within my own heart? Where have I lifted up a mask simply for the show of others or to make myself feel better, to make myself feel that I have done enough for you to come and bless me. Where has that become religious in my effort and devoid from a heartfelt response? We could rightly ask that as a local church. How can we, how can we ask and do anything at a broader level, perhaps if it doesn't start at our own hearts and our own community? Where have we hotly debated and divided over things that ultimately are secondary, tertiary, or lesser of importance than the core and the heart of the gospel that Jesus puts on display. Jesus has been showing us what gospel and kingdom work looks like to enter into the world, to give abundantly, to pour out his life, to reach into the hurting, the oppressed, the outcast, the defiled, to not only touch them, but let them touch him, to commune with them, to bring them to his table, to feed, to serve, to heal, to offer freedom, to give hope. This is what's been on display for him. And now that the Pharisees want to talk about ceremonial cleansing and rituals, and Jesus says, your heart is far from me. Would he say the same for us? Or in, and in humility will we receive Jesus bring us the conviction to confess, the resolve to repent, and the grace to grow, that we might not major on the minors, and divide over secondary and tertiary matters. If from a heartfelt response to draw near to the, to the communion table or simply the communion with God leads us to certain actions and behaviors, we must not condemn them. But if our heart has been, has been removed from them and they are merely perfunctory, maybe we would rightly uproot them in practice and come back to the heart that Jesus, I believe, is calling us to. And can't you just see in this example of washing how quickly it becomes about our own holiness and our own pride even? So how many times are you up to washing in a day, on a daily basis? Seven. Oh, seven. I used to wash seven. I'm up to nine. 
And it, we can take that to any extreme, can't we? To any action that would lead us, we believe, into God's presence. And even if it began with a heart to draw near to God, we would rightly say, Jesus, reveal where it's become a mere action. Jesus brings us the upside-down, unexpected kingdom, calling us to the heart of God. And the closer we get to the heart of God, the less and less rules and regulations actually exist. This is actually the story that I believe runs throughout Scripture. Of the, the 600 commandments were given because the first one wasn't followed or understood. The 10 commandments stand as the summary of all others. And the first of the 10, if rightly understood and received, and we could spend a lifetime on it, all the rest would be unnecessary. Have no other gods before me. Rightly, that brings up a lot of questions, doesn't it? Who are you, God? How do I know you, God? How do I make sure that you are the only God above all? How do I worship you faithfully? And so 10 more are given. Here's what it starts to look like to have no other gods before me. And since you also still ask an abundant amount of more questions about those 10, here's 600 more. Because more and more apparently were needed, and I believe many were written and ascribed and added on to by the traditions of the elders and the leaders, giving the benefit of the doubt of the original heart to not do anything to, to, to keep us from the presence of God or to keep us from receiving his grace, his forgiveness, and his mercy. But they become mere religions. The Apostle Paul, speaking about the law, and, and there was such a challenge in that, in that first century and such division that still existed by how much to keep the original Hebrew scriptures and the laws and how much was there truly freedom in Jesus. What did he truly accomplish and what did we still need to follow? And that debate has gone on for millennia, hasn't it? Paul writing to the Galatian church in Galatians 5.1 around this very topic says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, referring to the adherence to the law. He was not abolishing the law, just as Jesus did not abolish the law, but he was calling to the heart, calling back to the heart, which is always more difficult. It's never cut and dried, black and white, light and dark. There's always a wrestling to come to the heart of Jesus we could point to Abraham as an, another example, considered one of the most righteous men to ever lived, who walked with God, who communed with God and heard from him, was called God's friend, was told all the world will be blessed through you because of your faithfulness. And he lived hundreds of years before the law was ever given. And Paul uses him as an example. If he can be righteous and holy and a friend of God apart from the law, are we still burdened and believing we can only come close by the performance of ritual and regulation? Do you remember when Jesus was asked in an attempt to trap him and accuse him, what is the most important commandment? What's the most important law in, in all of the laws of all of the 600, Jesus, what's the most important? If you know anything about Jesus interacting with challenges, how often does he directly answer questions versus turn back and ask a new question? redirect, get to the heart. What do you say? He asks, right? This one, he answers straight out. I find that remarkable. 
it, knowing it's a trap. And he says, essentially, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the other laws and commandments hang on these. What does he mean? They, they come after these. They, they would be unnecessary to even consider if we faithfully fulfilled those. See, coming to the heart of God is less and less rules and regulations, more and more freedom to explore how to love fully in all ways to God and to one another. But it's not black and white, is it? God, how do I love my neighbor? How much do I give? How much do I serve? What if they don't deserve it, God? How do we pursue the sick and the hurting, the hungry and the poor, the imprisoned and the refugee? It'd be much easier to have a manual, wouldn't it, with everything decided for us. Here's how much to give. Here's how much time. Here's how much effort. Here's how much to sacrifice. Here's when to do it. Here's too much. This is enabling. Instead, the heart of God that compels us is one that draws us into a relationship of deep dependence to hear his voice, to commune with him, to see Jesus in the action of others, to know it's empowered by the Spirit, and to respond to it is a lifetime of pursuit. And I find that so compelling and so freeing, while all, all, admittedly hard and full of tension at times and uncertainty, we are drawn in and invited to this pursuit and this life. Jesus shows us, not prescribes what we are to do, but shows us what walking and living in the kingdom looks like, and it is on full display in his ministry. These are what disciples do. So where are we hypocritical? Not only, not merely are we, but where, Lord, have we simply gone through motions to make ourselves look better or more holy, to make ourselves feel better, to say, look, Look at us and what we are doing, or merely for the approval of others. The sobering words of Jesus in Matthew 7 in his Sermon on the Mount come to mind, 721. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter or walk in the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does truly the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name, drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. We would put those three things on a list of great things, wouldn't we? We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We, we stood for good. We defended we performed even miracles in your name. And he will say to some, making the point about the heart, I never knew you. Those were actions for yourself, for your own advancement, for your own kingdom, not for mine, not for the will of the Father. Even though they looked holy, Jesus always sees and brings us to the heart. So, Lord, would you show us where we have lip service or empty actions and where our hearts may be far from you?
I believe, would Jesus say to us, wash or say to the Pharisees, wash your hands a thousand times over, not condemning the action. Go through your rituals and preparation to worship, but be sure that you have gotten dirty amongst the poor. Would he say to us in context, come and gather and assemble in your church gatherings. Sing your many songs. Come to the communion table. Pray your prayers. Recite your creeds. Dress in your Sunday best. Bring it all. But bring your heart first. And from that communion, go into the world that I have sent you and planted you into to extend my kingdom to live amongst the hurting and the poor and the needy, to bring healing and hope and freedom in every way. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. As a local church, I believe we are growing in many expressions and applications. And our deep prayer is that they would not ever become actions that would lead toward a look at us, or an attention, or an approval, that we stand apart as the truer disciples than the others, which is so within every one of our hearts. God, keep us humble, that we would reflect you and represent you, not just in deed, but in heart, and in character, in attitude, in motivation, and in attention. There is always more to grow in the kingdom and the heart of Jesus. Perhaps, if we relentlessly would give ourselves to the kingdom work, to the energy and the the, the devotion in prayer and pursuit, to know this heart of God, to strive to express it, we would have very little left to debate and divide over secondary and tertiary things because the kingdom work is too great. And the distance I feel from fulfilling it in the way that I am giving, been giving opportunity is so great and so massive. And this time is so short. I have nothing left to give to those debates and those divisions. Would there be much less? And would there be a greater unification in the church today, the church at whole? We as an alliance movement is in our own ongoing conversation of a potential conflict and division. And it breaks my heart to see when the movement of God is at work. And there are many divisions and difference of opinions and perspectives. Praise God for them. They reflect the the multifaceted nature of God and the individual image-bearing sense that we all have been given. But many are sensing the fractured And how do we not, like any other movement or denomination after enough time, split and fracture and divide as so many of our predecessors have in the Protestant movement or the evangelical movement? Not picking on Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists saying that we are following in that train, that at some point there seems to be fracturing and division over a this is more right interpretation. Jesus, help us all in our places to build unity and pursue your kingdom, walk in humility that we could represent you well and be unified by you alone. A.W. Tozer used that famous example. How do you tune a hundred pianos to one another? 
Find one tuning fork, and every piano tuned to that fork will instantly be tuned to one another, calling us to be tuned to Jesus in his way and his will, and instantly be tuned to one another in unity. Tune our hearts to you, Lord, we pray. And as we respond, I'll invite Catherine and Tommy and Daniel to come. Help us respond to God's call and invitation today, however he is leading. We pray, tune our hearts to you, Lord. Grant us conviction to confess, resolve to repent, and grace to grow. Where your words to a group of people 2,000 years ago are being spoken to our own individual hearts, we receive, Lord. Humble us, Lord. We confess again. We are no different in many ways than these Pharisees. The sin within our heart, the desires to esteem ourselves, to elevate ourselves, and even to earn your approval and favor, runs so deep. Yet, Jesus, your grace runs deeper. Your healing is fuller. Your mercy is truer. And so we receive again, Lord, what you have offered to extend to us, to walk in your kingdom day by day through confession and repentance, to turn, to see rightly, we pray, to hear correctly, and to walk in humility with soft hearts as we pursue you, Jesus. Unify your church, we pray. We are desperate that your church would be an emblem of unity to this world, that by our love for one another, all would know that we're following you, and by our extension of your work, of your way, those that are hurting and suffering and poor and oppressed would be brought healing and hope and freedom and love in Christ for your glory and our joy. Amen.